0: Due to the content of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drugs and alcohol. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Have you ever wondered how far you'd go to help a loved one? Sure, there are lots of situations where the answer might seem obvious. The life and death stuff can be a no-brainer. But what if the situation between right and wrong was more blurry? Are there certain lines you wouldn't cross? Would you stand by as they committed a crime? Would you help them do it? Usually, these are just hypothetical questions. But for Abby Cat, they weren't what-ifs. They were her life. And when push came to shove, her sense of loyalty got her into a whole world of trouble. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, we'll meet teenage bank robber Abby Cat. We'll explore why her dad felt like stealing was the best way to provide for his family. And look at why Abby was so easily pulled into his schemes. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game, and you could win money up to two million dollars. With more than eighty-eight million in prizes, ranging from fifty to five hundred dollars. Money maker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly.
1: There's a new class of blockbuster drugs, drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies, and all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive.
0: They're just. Bank breakers.
1: And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism.
0: The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning.
1: From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets, and sometimes, their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show.
0: From the day Abby Cat was born, her parents demonstrated the importance of family— Scott and Beth Cat wanted their children to know that regardless of where they lived or what they went through, the most important thing was being there for one another. Not that things were particularly difficult for them at the time. They were the picture-perfect family. 33-year-old Scott and 30-year-old Beth were high school sweethearts, still hopelessly in love after so many years together. They put down roots in Oregon wine country, and their kids grew up with a yellow lab to play with and a sizable house. For a while, everything was just peachy. But when Abby was two, their idyllic life crumbled. Beth had been fighting breast cancer for Abby's entire life, and in 1997, she lost the battle. Scott did his best to support Abby and five-year-old Hayden through the incredibly difficult time. Over the summers, he took them to amusement parks and signed them up for the local swim team. He cooked elaborate dinners before their meets and cheered them on at every competition. Abby loved how involved he was, but she only saw this one side of her father. As the years went on, Scott's grief took hold. He started drinking heavily and got a couple of DUIs. Things eventually got so bad that he left the kids with their grandmother and checked into rehab. Scott came home when Abby was a teenager, but unfortunately, it seems like the treatment hadn't helped him much, because things went right back to the way they were. As he sank deeper into his addiction, Scott fell behind on household duties, so Abby stepped in to pick up the slack. She did everything from paying bills to picking up the dry cleaning. While her classmates spent lunch periods gossiping about the latest school drama, Abby was out running errands, and she did it all while maintaining good grades and excelling as a swimmer. She didn't mind the extra work, though. It was for her family, after all. Besides, her dad and brother were the only people she had left in the entire world. But Abby could only do so much, It seemed like her dad couldn't help but self-sabotage. He partied away their savings, and despite Abby's best efforts to keep them afloat, they eventually had to declare bankruptcy. That meant they lost their house, which was one of their last remaining connections to Beth. Rather than fixating on blame, the setback brought Abby and Hayden even closer to their father. Holding one another tight, the trio said goodbye to their home and moved in with Scott's mom. But instead of taking advantage of the fresh start, Abby began to model her behavior after her dad's, and she was becoming more like him every day. By the time she was 15, Abby had traded her promising swim career for a new distraction, drinking. It's possible that partying seemed like the best, easiest coping mechanism. Before long, her grades were in free fall. Then she dropped out of school entirely, It seems like Abby didn't do much of anything after she left. She either lacked the motivation or the ability to land a job, which meant she had even more time to help out at home. She pretended this didn't faze her, but secretly she felt like a failure. Hayden was also a heavy drinker, but he still managed to graduate high school and land a job. Even their dad kept up his engineering work. In contrast, there she was, a high school dropout with no future. As she stewed in her misery, Abby grew self-conscious and despondent. To the people around her, though, she just looked like any other angsty teen. No one, not even her family, realized that she needed help. Before we continue with Abby's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we've done a lot of research for the show. And we started by looking at reasons for Abby's change in behavior. Because as sad as her situation was, it's pretty common after a family death. According to clinical psychologist Dan Wolfson, children who lose a parent at a young age often feel anxious and isolated. Though it's not just because of their own emotions. In most cases, the surviving parent's grief makes it difficult for them to care for their children, leading them to feel like an afterthought. Those emotions then spread to the child's school life as they come to believe their peers don't understand them. Before long, they begin to identify as the weird kid who lost their parent and retreat inward. Ideally, the surviving parent would pick up on the fact that their child is struggling and try to ease their pain. But in Abby's case, her father was too busy with his own downward spiral to notice. Scott's grief wasn't the only thing distracting him from his kids. Like Abby, he had more going on behind the scenes than his family realized, a lot more. He'd been robbing banks for years, which is a lot. So let's go back in time for a sec. Bank robberies had fascinated Scott ever since he was a teenager. In his eyes, they were a victimless crime. You didn't have to hurt anyone, and the money was insured. Plus, they just looked fun to him. It's almost like he pocketed those thoughts and kept the idea stored away, just in case he ever needed it. Because you never know, I guess. Well, one day he did. After dropping the kids off at school sometime in the early 2000s, Scott pulled on a white painter's mask and grabbed an antique, unloaded pistol. Then he strode into his local branch and went right up to the teller. He demanded all the cash in her drawer. She handed it over and he walked away with about $2,500. We can't be sure what his thought process was, though Scott likely figured he had nothing else to lose. This was around the time he drained the family savings and lost the house, so he was desperate for cash. Plus, if something went horribly wrong and he got caught, at least the kids had their grandmother to look after them. After that first bank, Scott was hooked. He wanted to do it again, And again, and again, he robbed five more Oregon banks in the years that followed. The news covered each one, but all the police had to go on were a few surveillance photos. There just wasn't enough information out there to identify him. With each shakedown, Scott's confidence soared. He went from pulling in a couple grand to bagging up to $10,000 in one hit. We don't know what he did with the money or how he hid the cash from his family, but there's no question that as his paydays increased, so did his appetite for deception. Soon, he set his sights even higher, but he'd need some help to pull off a real heist. And who better to turn to than family? In 2010, 48-year-old Scott asked Hayden to join him, Shockingly, the 18-year-old agreed pretty much right away. If his dad needed him, he had his back. At least, that's how he felt in theory. When it came to actually doing the deed, Hayden got cold feet. Scott didn't let that deter him, though. He had a plan in place, and he was determined to follow through with it, with or without help. So he simply robbed the bank himself, pulling the job off without a hitch. Scott's success gave Hayden the push he needed. He figured his dad must really know what he was doing. So he asked for another chance. But before they could even think about another robbery, Scott lost his engineering job, which brought their plans to a screeching halt. Although Scott clearly had the means to ride out his unemployment, he probably realized it would be better to keep up appearances. He didn't want to give anyone a reason to question where his money was coming from. So he dutifully looked for a new job. In January 2012, about two years after Abby dropped out of school, Scott found work outside of Houston, Texas. So the 50-year-old moved the family down south, promising a fresh start. Once there, 17-year-old Abby embraced the chance to be a normal teenager for once. No one in Houston knew her as the girl whose mom died or the high school dropout, she could just be herself. Step one of setting up her new life was landing a job at Victoria's Secret, the hippest store in town. Then, after she nailed the interview and landed the gig, she bragged online that she was a pink girl. Finally, she felt like things were changing for the better. Unfortunately, that feeling was only temporary. There were plenty of changes coming her way. It's just that none of them were good. Coming up, Abby gets in over her head.
1: What could be more shocking than uncovering the dark secrets behind history's biggest stories, realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie? Hi, it's Molly from the Parkas series Conspiracy Theories. Each week, we take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction, revealing that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. The rise and fall of J. Edgar Hoover, 75 years of Roswell, the tragic death of Princess Diana. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may be just outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the
0: story. In 2012, 17-year-old Abby Catt was embracing her new life in Houston, Texas. But while she learned the ropes at her dream retail job, her father and brother were thinking about their first heist together, and they'd set their sights on the local Comerica bank. Comerica was a relatively large branch, so Scott had high hopes for a big haul. And by working as a team with his son, they could stick up multiple tellers at once. As assured as he was in his skills, though, he knew they needed to prepare. Every day, Scott walked past the strip mall where the bank was located. He wanted to get a sense of when they were busiest. Meanwhile, Hayden opened a checking account so he could case the joint. All that prep helped them see just how easily they could get caught. That's when they decided they needed a getaway driver. And they had the perfect person in mind. In August of that year, Abby was in her bedroom, bopping her head to Snoop Dogg and minding her own business when she heard a knock at the door. She paused the music. 20-year-old Hayden was standing awkwardly in the doorway, a look of discomfort on his face, as if he had something important to say. And boy, did he. As journalist Skip Hollinsworth describes in a 2014 article for Texas Monthly, he sat down on her bed and got right to it. Their dad was a bank robber, he explained, and Hayden was his accomplice. Now they wanted her to be their wheelman. Actually, they needed her. Stunned and probably a little confused, Abby stared at Hayden, waiting for the punchline. But it never came. He was dead serious. Abby's head spun. As she tried to take it all in, one thought kept popping into her mind. If she didn't help and they were caught, it would be on her. Her protective instincts kicked in. She couldn't let anything happen to them. So she agreed. The next morning, she went over the logistics with her dad. All she had to do was wait outside the bank. Then once Scott and Hayden were back in the car, she'd drive home. That was it clean and simple. Scott promised that as long as she did everything he said, there wouldn't be any trouble. And it seems he truly believed that. He thought he was doing right by his family. But what he was really doing was engaging in codependent behavior. According to health writer, Rona Lewis, codependent parents rely on their children for way too many things. In Scott's case, he'd started out by leaning on Abby for help with chores and bills. This was something else entirely, though. Instead of finding a legitimate way to provide for his kids, he enlisted them in his criminal schemes. Abby and Hayden played right along because they were equally codependent on him. Ever since their mom's death, the family dynamic had been dysfunctional at best. All that added up to Abby putting her loved one's needs above her own. So although she understood that robbing a bank was a huge risk, the teen was in she couldn't turn her back on her family. After that, the cats finalized their plans. They decided to strike on her next day off, August 9th. In the days before the heist, Abby sat on the couch, watching while her dad drilled Hayden on what he was going to do when they got to Comerica. Abby watched Hayden hold up his gun and order a make-believe teller to give him all her money. It wasn't a real gun, though. It was an airsoft, a weapon that shoots small pellets instead of bullets. Abby popped another chip into her mouth as they practiced their entrance and exit based on the layout they'd scouted earlier. She later rationalized that they were like the Breaking Bad family, just without the drugs or murder, which was good, right? Everyone loved that show. But as the big day loomed, the magnitude of the thing hit her. It was all getting so real. First, they replaced the license plates on Abby's green Volkswagen Jetta, swapping them out from a pair they stole from a neighbor's car. That was the final step before the big day. Now, all she had to do was wait. The night before the heist, Abby tried to get some rest, but she could barely sleep. She tossed and turned, running through the possibilities in her mind. By the time morning rolled around, she'd convinced herself she didn't have a choice. Whether or not she liked it, she was along for the ride. Or rather, she was the ride. Resigned to what felt like her fate, Abby went to her closet and threw on black yoga pants, a blouse, and some flip-flops. She looked like a typical teenager, which was kind of the point. Running shoes might have seemed a more sensible choice for a getaway driver, but it's not like she was a professional. Once they were all set, Abby, Hayden, and Scott filed out of the house and into her car. As she gripped the steering wheel, her throat was tight and her heart beat wildly. She turned to her dad and admitted how scared she was. Scott assured her everything would be okay. They just had to stick to the plan. Abby took a deep breath and regained her composure. She didn't want to let her dad down. She could do this. A few minutes later, she pulled into the strip mall and parked about 50 yards away from the bank. She stared at the building while the men changed into their disguises. They wore white painter's masks, coveralls, and gloves. Each carried an airsoft pistol. Abby felt better knowing no one would get hurt, but that didn't change how nervous she was. When her dad handed her a walkie-talkie, she took it with shaky hands and held on for dear life. It was go time. Abby let the guys out of the car and circled around to the back alley. She waited there, her foot tapping on the floor, fingers drumming the steering wheel. Then she heard her dad's voice through the radio. They were heading in. Abby swallowed. There was no going back now. Scott and Hayden had timed the whole thing. They had exactly three minutes to get in and out before the cops showed up. Abby glued her eyes to the clock, watching the moments tick by. She radioed her dad with updates every 30 seconds. Moments after she gave the final warning, Scott and Hayden burst through the bank's rear door. They threw garbage bags stuffed full of cash into the back seat and jumped into the Jetta. Abby wanted to hit the gas hard, but Scott yelled at her to keep it slow. They couldn't draw attention to themselves. Abby eased off the accelerator and drove as normally as she could, but it was difficult with all the adrenaline coursing through her body. She did make one diversion. They needed to dump the gloves, disguises, pistols, and stolen license plates. So she pulled into an alley behind a restaurant and tossed it all into a dumpster. Abby continued checking the rear view all the way home until finally, they made it back safe and sound. The first thing her dad and Hayden did was dump the bags of cash out onto the floor. All told, they'd made off with almost $70,000. Abby was in awe. She'd never seen that much money in her life. She would have been happy if they'd stopped right there and put the money into a savings account. But her dad had other ideas. First, he bought himself a new motorcycle. Then he got Hayden a brand new Tahoe and Abby a Ford Focus. With all those splashy purchases, the money was gone by late September, which meant it was time to rob another bank. This time, Scott and Hayden chose First Community Credit Union as their target. Worried about getting caught on the security camera, they sent Abby to survey the layout. She was a nervous wreck. She walked inside and pretended to be interested in opening an account. She sat down with an employee to discuss what the process would be like. All the while, she tried to memorize everything she could about the building. 20 minutes later, she told the banker she'd think it over, then practically ran out of the branch. She gave her dad and brother all the details she could remember and agreed to be their driver once more. Shortly after her trip to the bank, Scott sent her and Hayden to buy new disguises. There was a construction site next door to First Community, so the men decided to buy two orange safety vests to act as their costume. With that, they were ready for their next hit. On October 1st, 2012, Abby took the day off from work to drive the getaway car. The family arrived at First Community Credit Union and the men hopped out, donning their construction vests and sunglasses. Scott had on his usual painter's mask while Hayden sported a fake mustache. They strolled into the bank, raised their airsoft pistols, and demanded money from the tellers. Meanwhile, Abby waited outside and called in the times. At three minutes, Scott and Hayden ran out the door and jumped into the car. Then they pulled away before anyone could get a good look at them. It all went down exactly like the first heist, except this time, multiple cop cars sped towards the bank as the cats drove away from it. Abby tensed up as Scott and Hayden ducked down in the back seat. But the police weren't concerned with the teenage girl driving down the road. So the crew made it home and counted up the loot. This time, it was only $30,000. Abby knew what that meant. Her dad would want to rob another bank, sooner rather than later. But she was done. It was way too stressful. She told her dad she was worried they were going to get caught. She wanted to take her cut of the money, move into her own apartment, and close this chapter of her life. But Scott wouldn't let her go that easily. They'd never pull it off without her. He promised to get her an apartment, but begged her to stick with them. They needed her. Those were the magic words. They were family. In that moment, Abby was engaging in what researchers Gresham Sykes and David Matza called neutralization. That's when offenders justify their criminal acts beforehand or rationalize them afterward. There are five major methods of neutralization. In Abby's case, she was appealing to higher loyalties. In other words, the fact that she was doing this for her family warranted breaking one rule. She still saw herself as a good person. It wasn't like she was out there breaking any other laws. This neutralization made it easy to compartmentalize her crimes. They didn't define her, they were just tiny little things she did every now and then to make her dad happy. Or that's what she told herself, at least. Before long, that worldview was put to the test. By early November, a month after their last robbery, Scott and Hayden had picked a new bank to stick up. We don't know which one it was, but it was all set to go down on the 8th. However, when they arrived, it was a lot busier than they anticipated. So Scott made an executive decision. They'd come back the next day when it wasn't so dangerous. There was no reason to rush. Well, no reason that they knew of. Coming up, the law finally catches up to Abby and her family. Now back to the story. okay so we left things in november of 2012 with abby Kat, and her family getting ready for their next heist but i want to leave them there for a moment and go back to august of that year that's when detective jeff martin was analyzing security footage from the family's robbery at first community bank he'd noticed something that stuck out to him the high-vis vest the robbers wore looked a little too clean there was no dirt or grime on them at all In fact, if he looked close enough, he could make out the creases in the fabric as if they were fresh out of the package. With that in mind, Detective Martin searched the area for stores that sold that type of vest. Eventually, he landed on Home Depot. Bingo. Next, he subpoenaed the store's purchase history. Lo and behold, someone had bought two vests just a few days before the robbery and they were purchased with a debit card belonging to Scott Cat. Martin reviewed the security footage from around the time of the purchase and saw two young adults walk out holding the vests. A simple background check identified them as Abby and Hayden Catt, Scott's kids. Everything was all lining up, For starters, Hayden and Scott fit the description of the bank robbers. Witnesses had also mentioned hearing a woman's voice through the robbers' walkie-talkie, which Martin assumed was Abby. The detective realized he had a bank robbing family on his hands. Now he just wanted to stop them before they could strike again, so he gathered his evidence and went to pay the cats a visit. His timing was impeccable. After their failed attempt the day before, they were set to pull off their third Texas bank robbery on November 9th. But before they could leave the house, there was a knock at the door. Detective Martin and his team stormed the apartment and arrested Scott and Hayden on the spot and caught Abby later that day. Obviously, the officers didn't want to give them the chance to talk amongst themselves, so they sent all three straight into separate interrogation rooms at the station. 18-year-old Abby broke into tears as soon as investigators questioned her. In between sobs, she told them how her father had always been there for her, how she'd felt like she had to help him. At no point did she try to deny her involvement in the robberies. Neither did Hayden or Scott. They all readily admitted to their crimes. And not just the two Texas heists. Unprompted, Scott also told them about the five banks he robbed in Oregon years earlier. The detectives were stunned. They'd never gotten confessions so easily. Meanwhile, the media picked up the case and ran with it. Outlets everywhere were in a tizzy over the bank robbing family. Mainly, people wanted to understand how a father could stoop so low as to involve his kids in his crimes. News stations saw their opportunity and invited the Cat family to tell their story themselves on shows like 2020. In the interviews, Scott swore that he'd do anything to help his kids avoid jail time. But that wasn't exactly true. As plea deal negotiations wore on, Scott wrote Abby a letter asking her to be willing to serve jail time to help him. He thought it might lower his own sentence. Abby had always taken her dad's side, but this was a bridge too far. At long last, the teen realized how codependent their relationship truly was. He said that he regretted his actions, and yet he wouldn't take full responsibility. He wanted to share that with his own children. After that, Abby refused to help her dad any longer. He was her parent. He should have protected her, not the other way around. So Abby's defense team arranged her deal separately from her family's. They left Scott to fend for himself. In 2013, all three cats pleaded guilty. Scott accepted a 24-year deal for aggravated robbery. Hayden got 10 years. Abby made out with five. That was a bit of a miracle, to be honest. Under Texas law, a getaway driver has the same liability as the robber holding the gun. But police and prosecutors took pity on Abby. They believed she was more a victim than a perpetrator. The sheriff showed her even more lenience. After her sentencing, he decided not to send her to prison at all. Instead, he kept her at the county jail. He figured with the right guidance, she could gain some new skills while behind bars and lead a productive life afterward. For the next two years, Abby did just that. She studied for her GED and learned to sew and alter clothes. She even befriended her instructor, a volunteer named Susie Gregory. They grew so close that Susie invited Abby to live with her once she was released. When Abby was paroled in 2015, She took her friend up on that offer. Susie and her husband wanted to see 21-year-old Abby succeed, and they figured she needed structure to make that happen. So they set a few ground rules. Curfew was 10 p.m. on weekdays and midnight on weekends, and she had to attend church with them on Sundays. That all sounded easy enough. Unfortunately, the transition from jail wasn't exactly smooth sailing. Abby appreciated the Gregories, but she wasn't quite ready for a new set of parental figures. So she reverted to her teenage ways. She skipped church, dabbled with drugs, and broke curfew. Sometimes she wouldn't come home at all. Susie couldn't take it. She'd tried to help, but if Abby wasn't willing to work on herself, so be it. She asked Abby to leave. Abby took the news in stride. For a while, she bounced around the state. We don't know what she did during this period, but eventually she landed a job with a trucking company in Laredo, Texas, about 300 miles away from Houston. That's where she met Ricardo Gonzalez. By Abby's own admission, Ricardo wasn't a good person. Exactly what she meant by that, I couldn't say, but we do know that he was a convicted felon who encouraged her partying attitude. They shared a lot of drugs and alcohol between them. She also started skipping meetings with her parole officer. Then, one night in August of 2016, Ricardo pulled into a gas station. Abby was so high in the passenger seat that she fell asleep before he even fueled up. She woke up surrounded by cops. An officer pulled her out of the car and onto the ground. As she took in the scene, her stomach sank. Ricardo allegedly had tried to rob customers at the gas station. Abby swore she hadn't known about his plan. After all, she'd been asleep through the whole thing. But it didn't matter. When the police ran her name through their system, they learned she had a warrant out for violating parole. They arrested her on the spot. That's how 22-year-old Abby Cat landed back in jail. She only served about a year before she was released. This time, she boarded a Greyhound bus to Oregon to stay with her aunt. Sadly, she went right off the rails again. She drank, did drugs, and eventually her aunt kicked her out. It seemed like Abby was on a slow downward spiral. However, things took a turn for the better in 2019, when the 25-year-old got a job at a fish processing plant. That might not sound all that appealing, but Abby loved it for two reasons. It was a steady paycheck and she met a new man there. Their relationship was arguably the most stable one Abby ever had. And not long after they got together, she found out she was pregnant. Suddenly, her whole life shifted. Abby realized she couldn't be selfish anymore. She had to change her ways if she wanted to be a good mom. Researcher Peggy Giordano found that pregnancy is a significant reason why some female criminals stop offending. Now, this isn't always the case, but if the pregnancy is wanted, which it was for Abby, then it's often an identity-altering experience. That's because in these situations, the new mom suddenly realizes that her old behavior doesn't align with her view of motherhood. The realities of being a parent kick in, and those don't include drinking, partying, or breaking the law. For Abby, becoming pregnant stopped her from winding up in jail again, and it may have even saved her life. She quit drugs and alcohol and stayed away from anyone who might be a bad influence on her. All of that felt easier this go-around. She was focused on giving her child a stable home the very thing she thought she had growing up, but never actually did. Her parents had taught her that family was the most important thing, a lesson that her father twisted to suit his own schemes. It just took her a while to see the truth of that, but with the opportunity to start her own family, Abby Cat finally learned that loyalty isn't all that matters. Love, responsibility, and intention, those are just as important. Without them, you've just got a mess. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Abby Cat, amongst the many sources we used, we found Skip Hollinsworth's article, I Would Only Rob Banks for My Family, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky, Sarah Batchelor, and Joel Callen, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Bruce Kitovich. I'm Vanessa Richardson.